greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who was a victor over the devil. And David had asked a question, what would have happened had he not been victorious? The thought is unthinkable. But he did, so we are blessed with that. I want to welcome all the visitors. Thank you for being here. This is the main part of the the, the main sermon this morning. So uh, trust we can all learn what God says in his word. And um, I know you were just standing. Let's just pray like this. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for what has happened already this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are you are victor. You have ascended into the heavens and you are there interceding for us. You are our redeemer. Someday you will come back again for us. And Lord, we have a charge to keep now and a God to glorify. We thank you, Lord, for that privilege that we have of being saved by you. Teach us now this morning of your word. Teach us clearly and plainly the way things are so we may understand and we may we may be able, Lord, to be victorious as you were, as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn, if you have your Bibles, to Second Corinthians chapter 2. It's been a while since I was in my book study of Second Corinthians, but we are actually going to go back there for a, a couple of messages at least. Second Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 3 to verse 11. So follow along as I read. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any had caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part, that I might, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrariwise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For this end, for to this end also I did write, did I write that I might know the proof of you whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave it, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, this second chapter, the subject is about forgiveness and the comforting of a certain individual who has sinned and wronged people. And it's not stated who this person is for sure. Uh, the majority view is that it was that man in 1 Corinthians that had sinned by having his mother's, his father's wife. And... And that man, it was the man that the, the Christian, the Corinthians had embraced and gloried in as they expressed their supposedly liberty in Christ. But Paul told that church to excommunicate him. Others think that it was someone who had wronged Paul personally in one of his several visits to Corinth. Corinth. And that this person maybe had directly opposed Paul and had personally attacked him, maybe publicly. 
And that viewpoint would fall in line with the fact that Paul is also forgiving him, and also that Paul also still had some opposition in the church. This was one of the oppositions, maybe one of the ringleaders, but there was still opposition in the church. But we don't know, but the main thing is that this man who sinned was confronted and disciplined, and he did repent. But it seemed that some of the church was slow to fully receive him back again. Maybe they thought he needs to be punished longer. Maybe he felt he needed to feel a little more pain, or maybe they felt he couldn't be trusted yet. But as there is a time to confront and discipline a wrongdoer, there is also a time to forgive and to comfort and to reaffirm the love to one who repents. And this thing was actually, and this entire thing was actually a test for the church, the Corinthian church. Paul didn't tell them at the time he gave it to them. But he says here in verse 9, he says, uh, in the living, in the, in the, the new living translation said, I wrote as I did I wrote to you as I did to test you and to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. Paul knew what he was doing. They didn't know what he was doing, but he was watching for a response from them, and he was watching them. He didn't tell them it was a test, but it was. It is hard. It's hard to confront sin And to pursue it out of the church. And then to have a totally willing heart to forgive the offender. That's in this passage. And then the last verse comes, the well-known phrase. In verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So you see, Satan wants this unity in the church. He wants us to act in pride. He wants extremes. He wants sin to be in the church. And then when sin is dealt with, he wants it to be dealt with severely and harshly. And he does not want forgiveness to take place between the parties. These are some of his schemes. And Paul said, we know that. We are not ignorant of his schemes. So that's the context. But as far as the topic this morning, I'm going to do a character study. I did a lot of character studies already of numerous people, but I've never done a character study of the devil. Of Satan. And this morning, it will be about the origin and fall of Satan. And I'll need at least one more message to describe the work that Satan does in the world and in us and talk about his schemes. We won't have to get into really any of his schemes this morning. So that's the topic this morning, the character study of Satan, number one. That's the title. Why study the devil? Why not just study Jesus? Well, as with other subjects, and I've done this often already, we get a fuller perspective by understanding the alternative. When you understand the opposite or the alternative or the contrast, you understand Jesus better. And you will appreciate his work more when you really understand who the devil is and what his intentions are. Then you understand Jesus better. So that is the goal this morning, to understand who Satan is so we can also understand Jesus better in that contrast. Well, who is Satan? Is he real? 
What does he look like? What does he like? How does he operate? What does he do? Some of our success depends on knowing the enemy and knowing who he is and how he operates. You know, when you have a, they do this in professional sports, I understand that, and they also do it in on all kinds of debates. If you're going to have a debate with somebody, you study that person and his his method of operation and his arguments, and you, you, you study that person so you are better prepared to to uh, interact with him. Or, uh, or the, the point of a debate is usually to overcome him or uh, win. And the same same way with sports. You study the opposing team, and you know their moves, and you know their normal modes of operation so that you can counteract them and overcome them. And so, as we look at the devil, we have an enemy. The same thing with armies. Uh, any, any kind of conflict, it is done. And so we have a conflict. We have a, a, an enemy. We have a devil. And Paul says he's not ignorant of the devil's schemes. So, first of all, I found a poem about the devil that appears to be have been written probably a hundred plus years ago when the whole modernist movement was really encroaching on the Western church. And it was written in that context. You might understand it. But uh, the idea was that people no longer believed in the supernatural. And the title is, Who Does the Mischief? Men don't believe in a devil now as their fathers used to do. They reject one creed because it's old for another because it's new. There's not a print of his cloven hoof nor a fiery dart from his bow to be found in the earth or air today. At least they declare it so. But who is it that mixes the fatal draught? That palsies heart and brain, that the fatal drought would be, in that case, alcohol, but you could say alcohol and drugs today, and loads the buyer, the, the coffins, basically, the other B-E-I-B-I-E-R, the bear of each passing year with its hundred thousand slain. Who blights the bloom of the land today? With the fiery breath of hell, if it isn't the devil that does the work, who does? Won't somebody tell? Won't somebody step to the front forthwith and make his bow and show? How the frauds and the crimes of the day spring up, for we surely want to know. We are told he does not go about as a roaring lion now, but Whom shall we hold responsible for the everlasting row? I didn't know what row meant, but I looked it up. It means arguments and disunity and that kind of thing. So who shall we hold responsible for the everlasting row? To be heard in home, in church, in state, to the earth's remotest bound. If the devil, by a unanimous vote, is nowhere to be found. Who dogs the steps of the toiling saint? Who spreads the net for his feet? Who sows the tares in the world's broad field where the Savior sows his wheat? If the devil is voted not to be, is the verdict therefore true? Surely someone, surely someone is surely doing the work the devil was thought to do. The devil was fairly voted out, and of course the devil's gone. But simple people would like to know who carries his business on. This year is the 200th year of the publishing of a book titled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Does anybody know what that book is? Have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Ring a bell? Okay. 
is more known as Jefferson Bible. Um, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, was a deist, and he didn't believe in the supernatural. So he did appreciate the teachings and the morals of Jesus. He thought that those 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 moral teachings of Jesus were um, were valuable for society. But he didn't believe in the miracles or the supernatural. So he, before cut and paste was evented on Windows and Microsoft and Word and whatever you have there, he cut and pasted the four Gospels, took everything supernatural, all the miracles out, and the resurrection, and just kept the life and the morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So I doubt, I didn't ever read it, and I doubt whether he believed in a real devil. But that was uh, sort of context of this poem, probably. So, is there a real devil? Well, from a philosophical perspective, there has to be a devil. Uh, God says in Romans 1 that the evidence for God is The evidence for God is so overwhelming that you actually have to close your eyes to not see it. You know there's a God because of what we have. In the same way, the evidence of evil and wickedness and sin just makes it evident that there is some force at work in a world that is the motivational cause of all that evil. And like the poems say, if it's not the devil, then pray me, tell me who it is. Paul clearly believed in the devil. He just said we're not ignorant of his schemes. Peter believed there was a devil. He said he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking to devour people. The beloved apostle John, he said the entire world lies in the power of the evil one, he's talking about the devil. Jude says there that Michael the archangel had a dispute with the devil about the body of Moses. James tells us to submit to God and to resist the devil, and then he'll flee from us. And Jesus did hand-to-hand combat with the devil like we heard this morning. Clearly, there is a being. There is a creature, there is a personality called the devil or Satan. And from what we know so far, he's not a very pleasant fellow. In scripture, we find him first in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there. And what did he do there? We find the serpent. That was the personification of the devil. He did. He deceived Eve with one of his very common schemes. What did he do? He promised her great and pleasant things while putting doubt on God and his character and his goodness. God is bad, but I'm good and I will give you this stuff. It's very much like the devil far as slandering God because the devil means slanderer. He slandered the character and intent of God. So, the question is, where did Satan come from? Who is he? And for that, I want you first to turn to Job 38. And we'll look at this, as we look at the character of uh, Satan, we'll look at his origin Uh, starting at verse 4 of 38. This is God asking Job some questions. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. God is asking Job. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou hast understanding? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, when I made the world, where were you? 
And the implication is he was nowhere. Job was did not see it happen. He wasn't there, and he knows nothing about the creation of the world as far as how God did it. But who was there? Well, it says the morning stars, and it says the sons of God. And I, I just like to picture the morning stars because morning stars is another another word for angels. It's one thing to have a, a more, uh, an angel sing, but they sang together. It, it, it was a choir. It was, it was probably harmony. I, I don't know what it sounded. Just trying to imagine what that sounded like, the morning stars. And as they sang together. But why were they singing? That's the point. Well, they were, they were observing things that God was doing. God created beings we call angels before he made man. And this is one reference of that. And they, like I said, they observe God speaking the universe into existence. Can you imagine what the angels, as they saw God begin this physic, what we call the physical creation, the, 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 what he called the foundation, the world, and then, then the light and darkness and the water and then, the stars, and then he started biological life, and those things grew, and then mankind, and they were observing all of this. And as they were observing, they were singing. I mean, every time he did something, I can imagine they had another course, and they shouted for joy. I wonder what we'd have done if we'd have been watching God do that. They were observers. They saw it happen. These angelic beings, spiritual beings, have personalities. They have emotions. They have feelings. They can sing. They can shout. They have joy. They have pleasure. And they were there, and they saw it happen. Now, answers in Genesis, as much respect that I have for them, they, they have the idea that the Bible has those words, in the beginning, God created, and there was absolutely nothing at all until those words and those first six days. And and I, there weren't even angels there, but that God made angels first, so to speak, only God. And I know they do that to counteract an alternative creation account called the gap theory, where between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2, there's a gap of billions of years that supposedly there was an original creation. Satan fell and it was destroyed and then God rebuilt it. That's called the gap theory. And, and so, so to counteract that, they say, well, there was nothing at all formed until Genesis 1 1 at that. And I, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, and it really doesn't matter, but I, I have a persuasion that sometime in eternity past, God created these spiritual beings, and in, to us innumerable, to God, he knows all the names. Every, all those angels have names. He knows the stars by name, and he knows the angels by name, I'm quite certain. But he made these innumerable to us spiritual beings. Sometime in the past and say, well, why did he do that? Well, because he wanted to. Genesis, uh, Revelation 4, 11, just say the verse here. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Those were the worship in heaven there. Turn also to uh, Psalms 148. If we think of the origins and creation and so on. Psalms 148 and verses 2 to 5. Say, Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his host. Host means an organized mass of individuals. Joined together for a particular purpose. An army would be a host. In fact, the host, when it, used, when it talks about the Lord of hosts, 
He's the uh, God is the Lord of hosts, and the host is actually like heaven's armies. It's 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 a huge number of people that uh, not people angels, <laughs> spiritual beings that are organized and in structure, and I think they have probably ranks, and I think they have order, and I think they have positions and jobs, and I don't know all that, but. In this here, in Psalms, he say, praise him, all ye angels, praise him, all his host. Then he goes on, praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created. And there where we see, God commanded, and all the angels, and all the heavenly armies has came into existence. Just like the world, God spoke and it happened. And like I said, I think these spiritual, well, these spiritual angelic hosts were in existence when God created the physical universe. And they were excited and they were amazed at the creative, creativity and power of Almighty God. So, it's a good heaven. God is good. The angels are good. The armies of heaven are good. And now there's a good universe, there's a good world, there's even some good people. And what could possibly go wrong? How is it that before there was any evil, before there was any tempter or deceiver, that evil came into being in one of these created beings? That's the mystery of the origin of evil. How could it happen? We don't know exactly how evil could come into a good world when there was no tempter. We don't understand that. God doesn't tell us exactly. But he does tell us the process of how it happened. And for that, you can turn to Ezekiel 28. And we'll look at a passage here. And we're starting at verse 11. I used to have a problem believing this passage was referring to Satan or to the devil. Because I looked at the context and me being a literalist, I saw, well, he's talking about, he's talking about the king of Tyre. He's not talking about something else. And I had a little bit of difficult with that for a while. However, as I studied it and studied in context and looked at the wording, I came to realize, no, he's not talking about an earthly king here. And I'll explain that as I go along. In the first 10 verses of chapter 28, Ezekiel is speaking to the human ruler of Tyre, and he calls him the prince of Tyre, I think in verse 1 or 2, one of them, yes, verse 2. Say unto the prince of Tyre. Then beginning in verse 11, the Lord had Ezekiel look past the human figurehead to the power that was behind that earthly throne, which is Satan. And, and Ezekiel addresses him as the king of Tyre. So now we have a king. He's the force behind the prince. So let's read it here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect, perfect in beauty. Sealest up the sum. That's the King James way of saying, You were the model of perfection. How was he a model? Well, he was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. What we have here is an absolutely stunning creature. A gifted creature. This, this, this creature was was a handiwork of the power and creativity of, of the Almighty God. 
anybody who would have seen this creature would have been impressed because he was the sum of perfection. He was the sum, sealed to sum. He was the apex of perfection, let's say it that way. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, and the diamond, and the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Satan was in Eden, and just look how he's described. He was either clothed or he was ornamented with these stunning, majestic stones. And he had tabrets and pipes. This is speculation that he was actually a creature that was actually a, a, a musical instrument. He was a musical instrument was not one that he had had to have a musical instrument. He was the musical instrument. And that indication, uh, I, I'm not going to go, it's a little bit of speculation, and I'm not even going to make a definition, but that's where some people think that he was probably heaven's choir director. He was in charge of the worship of God. <clears throat> well, let's read here. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so, as God speaking. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. This person, this being, was the anointed cherub. And God anointed him. And they watched the purpose. Well, God anointed him to cover. And he, he's, he's the anointed cherub to cover. And the place where we have the anointed cherub is in the Old Testament. I'm not going to look it up, but... The tabernacle, when Moses was told to make the tabernacle, in the holiest of holies, there was the ark, the ark of the covenant. And over the ark of the covenant, Moses was instructed to make two cherubim. And the one wing hit the, hit the wall on the other side, touched the wall, and then the wing came over to the center and touched the wing of the other cherubim and it hit the wall. So this, these two cherubim covered the ark, and the ark represented the very presence of God. God was there when the high priest came in once a year on only one day. Had to be this day, only once a year, and they had to come in with very special blood. And had he done right, he could come into the presence of God and make atonement for the sins of the people. And those cherubs were the covering of this holy, holy place. And here was Satan, Lucifer. Lucifer actually was his proper name. That is the morning star. Lucifer is his proper name. Um, was actually anointed and appointed by God to cover the real heavenly throne. Now, exactly how that is, I don't know. But that was what his purpose of creation was. And he walked among the stones of fire. Now, these stones of fire are, yeah, I, how do you know? Speculation, I think, come to my mind. But these stones of fire were right in the presence of God. Around the throne were these stones of fire. And he could walk there. Now, you know how it is. I've never been in the presence of a blast furnace, but I've been in the presence of pretty hot fires. You cannot stand up against a hot fire. You, you'll immediately duck away. You'll go down. You'll turn aside. You cannot stand against a very hot heat. You can't. But uh, Lucifer here was able to be right in the presence of God, in the holiness of God. Let's say, I forgot to say, like we can't stand up against a hot fire, neither can we stand up against the holiness of God. Whenever anyone gets into the presence of God, they always fall down flat. It's, it's that, that same kind of sense. But Lucifer could. 
He was anointed and he had that position. And I actually think he probably had the highest position of all. As the anointed cherub, he probably was number one. He had access of God. Maybe he's called God's right-hand man. And reading on here, thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. And everything was great until now. By now, you can see that this cannot be said of the prince of Tyre. This cannot be said of any man. You were perfect till now. No man has that Cannot have that designated. And that's why I come to the place I know he's not talking about a man. He's talking about the power behind the men. But you were perfect. You were not only a perfect being, but you were perfect in your ways. Your motives and your actions and your life were all perfect. You were created that way and you stayed that way until that ominous word till. At some point... Everything changed. Iniquity was found in this marvelous and blessed cherub. See, Lucifer was not created to be evil. But as a creature, he apparently had a will. And he had a potential for choosing evil. He was the most beautiful. He was the most wise He was the most powerful of all of God's creatures, and he became proud. It was this pride that caused his downfall. He, In fact, he instigated a rebellion. Now we turn to Isaiah 14, and we'll look at the part of the rebellion there. Isaiah 14, and we'll be going back then to uh, Ezekiel later if you want to keep your finger in there if you haven't lost it yet. Isaiah 14, and this tells how he actually set out, how Lucifer set out to elevate himself above the angels and to sit on the throne of God himself and become like God. Again, the context is uh, it's about the king of Babylon, and it's a lament against the king of Babylon and about the king's judgment of Babylon in Isaiah 14. But he again looks behind the scenes, and he goes to, um, to the heavenlies. How art thou fallen, starting in verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Now I want you to hear the five I wills of Lucifer as he exercises his power of choice and gives his intentions. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mountain, upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. What we have here is an intention and a declaration to knock the Almighty God off of his throne and take his place. And then at that place, he would rule things his way, and he would get all the worship. Satan once worship. He was going to dethrone God to be the top under God was not good enough. He's going to take God's place and he's going to rule his way and he's going to get to worship for himself. Somehow Satan thought he could do that. Somehow he did. Pride actually gets us to do pretty foolish things. Actually, and you think, I'd only think of it now. I mean, Look at the pride of the world and what it causes people to do. What caused him to think he could dethrone God. His rebellion failed. In fact, it totally failed. Well, well, in the one aspect, it totally failed. Okay, we'll, we'll get to the other aspect. 
He was not at all successful in overtaking God and overthrowing God's authority. That part totally failed. God still has authority over Satan, like we heard this morning, even in the country. The rebellion failed, and then God responded with judgment. And he said, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look on thee, upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? So that's Isaiah's revelation of Lucifer. Now let's get back to Ezekiel again. Starting at verse 16. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. When Satan sinned, when iniquity was found in him, he merchandised it. He trafficked it. He evangelized it. And as Revelation 12 indicates, he took a third part of the angels with him in this rebellion. And again, we have a little bit of speculation and put all the pieces together. It's a little difficult. But the perspective we get is one third of heaven's innumerable host, one third of them, went with Satan. He got them persuaded. Maybe he got them ahead of time and said, we're going to do it this way. I don't know. But um, he merchandised his own pride, and as the leader, he, he, he evangelized it and got a number of others, uh, lots of others, to join him. These angels, now we call fallen angels, they are now what we call demons. They are now organized under Satan. Rather than God. All the angels organized under God. All the demons organized under Satan. And they do Satan's bidding now. And do his word rather than God's word. So the judgment of God was swift. It was like lightning from heaven. Well, that's not sure that's taking out of contact or not. Jesus saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. But... That is actually why hell was created after this, this rebellion. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, his demons, his angels. So let's keep on reading here. Therefore, I will cast thee out as profane out of the mountain of God. Now, I should, I should, um, I want you to look at some I wills here. We had just listened to the devil's I wills. Now we have God speaking and we have God's I wills. Okay. I will cast thee out as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering chariot, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before king that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thy iniquities, by the iniquities of thy traffic. Therefore, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee, among the people shall be astonished at thee. <clears throat> thou shalt <clears throat> be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. And like, like the I wills of Satan, God has I wills. He said, I will cast thee as profane. I will destroy thee. I will bring thee to ashes. Never shalt thou be any more. And those are statements of intent. Satan intended to take over the throne of God. His intent failed. God gives now his intentions, and God can actually fulfill his intentions. God has the power to do that. Now, if God says that Satan will not be any more, then why are we still talking about Satan? And that's because God's I wills, at least partially, is still future. 
God's intent for Satan has not yet, Satan has not yet received full judgment. You see, Satan, in the future, that's going to be complete judgment, but it's not yet. Satan lost his position and place before God, but God did not yet destroy him. So, those I wills are mostly in the future. There was never any plan devised to redeem the devil and his angels. There was no redemption, there was no salvation, there was no redeemer. That estrangement from God, when God cast them from his presence, that, that was permanent. And imagine that, if that were the case for us as people. Satan actually never lost his power. Satan did not lose his wisdom when he fell. He just changed the use of his power and wisdom. He was anointed by God, and only God can destroy him. Satan is still a mighty and powerful being with with uh, with a um, great abilities to influence and rule. Now I'll probably get ahead of myself, but we're going to get a little bit practical here. I just want to mention that we as people are no match to the devil, but the devil is no match to God, and that's the context. That's the order. And Mark 3, um, and Mark 3, don't have to turn there. I'll read a few verses here. Jesus is given an illustration when people were accusing him of uh, casting out devils in the name of Beelzebub. And Jesus said, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. So this strong man has a house, and everything he has is secure because he's a strong man. He has the ability to keep it. Nobody's going to come and take it until a stronger one comes, binds him, and then that person can loot his good. Now, that's a good way of when you want to talk about anything good about looting. This is good looting when he's taking his spoil Jesus, that the stronger man is Jesus, and he is looting the devil. Now, some people in this country try to explain that it's actually looting can actually be good in this context of this country. But this is good looting. We are the devil's goods, and we are his prisoners, prisoners, and we're not getting out by ourselves till Jesus comes and he binds Satan. And then we are freed. A few more verses that go with that. In Colossians 1.13, Who, that's God, hath delivered us, he did it, delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated or transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Two kingdoms. Paul was called by God to preach to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, in Acts 26:18 and he said to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God then they will receive once they turn from that to there they will receive forgiveness of their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me now cam when uh, when um, when they go out on those emergency endeavors, when you have a tornado or when you have a hurricane or something like that, there's there's a swath of destruction, floods, whatever it is. There's a swath of destruction, and so they send teams in there, and the purpose is to to uh, clean up and to restore things because things have been destroyed. 
That is exactly why Jesus came into the world to clean up what the devil has destroyed and to restore it. That is the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus. If you want to put it in a nutshell, the devil got Adam and Eve and then he got all the posterity and things are ruined. And the Lord Jesus has come back to clean up and restore like Cam in a sense like Cam would do. There's another reference of the power of God in a believer, a very familiar one that I use many times. I think earlier in my Christian life, I used it, and maybe I don't use it as much as I should anymore, but it says in 1 John 4, 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I remember you're not greater than he that is in the world, but he that is in you is greater than he is in the world. And that has to be. So no creative being, no created being has more power than Lucifer. And now we can understand why he is the king of this world. He is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this world. Satan wanted God's position so that all creation would worship him. He desires worship. He wants to be worshipped. But his original plan failed. He got thrown out of that dominion. So he comes to this dominion, this domain, the earth. And he tries it again. And he, he goes to what I call God's hybrid biological, biological and spirit beings. That's us. We're bi- we're a hybrid being. We're spirit beings like the angels, but we're also biological. We're, we're living fleshly matter. So he, he couldn't do it in the spirit world. He did it in this world. And he was successful. He got Adam and Eve to forsake God and follow him. And then he got everything that Adam and Eve had, what they were given charge of, since they gave the allegiance to him, now he got it. And he got all their children because that the, the, um, he got the head and then he got the rest. And he has a mass following. And were it not for the redemptive work of God, that would be the end of the story. When Satan got mankind, he got them. And that's the end of the story without intervention. Satan is the ruler of this world and all worship Satan. Only God did not let mankind go. And we know the story, we're familiar with it. He gave that first promise that there's going to come a child that's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be, there's going to be, there's war, but that serpent is going to lose. It was promised right there. And then he also made those animal skins, which was the emblem of first sacrifices that were made so that man could have access to God in limited ways in the interim. And that is why not everybody is a child of the devil today. <clears throat> but so Satan got thrown out of heaven. He lost his position with God, that original covering cherub. Then he stole or usurped Adam's dominion from him and became the ruler of this world. And this world is now his kingdom. Though his original plan in usurping God failed, he did set up a rival kingdom to God. And he has temporary success. Remember, he, he is having success. It's temporary, but he is having it. Someday in the future, it's actually going to reach an apex. 
Somewhere that, that when the Antichrist comes, when that man of perdition, whatever, those things come and they're going to have a temple and there's going to be this man that's going to be in the temple as God and he's going to be worshipped as God. In the future, he's going to have his most glorious moment yet. Satan wants worship. And in the future, he's going to get the closest to it as he as will ever get. Now we can understand why Satan is the king of this world and the god of this world. He is king because he has power and he has ability and he has influence. He has a kingdom. He has subjects. And everybody in this world is either a subject of his kingdom or is a subject of God's kingdom and at war with that kingdom. As people, we are naturally, our, our natures are naturally attuned to Satan because of the fall. And that is why the Holy Spirit is needed to actually um, pull us and release us and enlighten us. We must have the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no enlightenment. And so the Holy Spirit is needed to help us to understand and see the Lord Jesus and the redemption and also see our need and where we're at and how we are bound. So this is the first message about the character of Satan. Uh, we have become familiar with his perfection and his beauty as the most glorious of God's original angelic creation. We had then seen how the devil became proud and he initiated a rebellion against God and how God judged him and will someday destroy him. And finally, we've seen how the devil, being repulsed of his original plan to take over God, he took over God's creation instead. And with the help of Adam and Eve, the original help, he now rules the world. The next message, I plan to get practical and describe ways that the Bible says Satan does his work. We, we, are, we are God's people. Satan is not done with us. There is a war going on. He has schemes. He has wiles. He has devices. He has deceptions. Satan is all of that. And we're going to look at a number of different points where, uh, where it actually speaks directly about that. So we want to do that next time. We want to know how his common schemes are. We maybe, maybe we'll study the opposing team in the specific moves that he makes, the, where his strong points are, what his normal moves are, what his alternative moves are, and all those things. We want to look at the opposing team. Only to know and be alert and be aware as we are in, in war with him that we don't fall for some of his schemes. It's important to know how we can avoid his power and his traps and overcome him through the power. So I'm going to read a few verses here in Ephesians here at the end here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take upon you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. In light of that, could we just stand for a closing prayer? So Lord, we are eternally grateful as we again recognized the amazing redemption that you have provided offered to us 
Lord, we have not looked this morning at what for great cost you went to achieve that redemption. Uh, just a little bit in the, in the, in the temptations in the wilderness. And then how you took, went to the Garden of Gethsemane and how you agonized and then how you went to the cross and how you took upon yourself all the abuse and mockery and pain, everything that mankind could inflict on you. And you took it. It was, it was the pathway, Lord, to redeem us, to, uh, to get a win uh, uh, over Satan and to uh, really and truly establish the alternative kingdom here on this earth. Lord, we are grateful to you for what you have done. Lord, and as, as we study and if we look at Satan, I pray, Lord, that we would not glorify him. He's not to be honored, not to be worshipped. He's not to be awed about. He is to be reviled. But, Lord, we need to know about him and understand so that we are not taken in by him. So, Father, I just pray for each one here. I think in the coming week, Lord, as we think of spiritual warfare, if you think of walking with you, and if you think of uh, fighting the devil, I pray you would guide us. May your Holy Spirit truly illuminate us and strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated.